You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Welcome to the Strong Towns Podcast. Today we're running audio from the third episode of our webcast series, Ask Strong Towns. This webcast is hosted on a monthly basis by Chuck Marone and other Strong Towns staff and friends. In it, we give you the chance to ask your burning questions about our vision for change and how the Strong Towns approach might apply in your unique place. The webcast is open to all Strong Towns members, and you can find more information by visiting the Ask Strong Towns page on our website. I'll include the link in the show notes. In today's episode, Chuck and Kia discuss several audience-submitted questions on topics ranging from TIFF and bonds to historic preservation to how to campaign on a Strong Towns platform. We hope you enjoy this podcast and that you'll join us on the next live webcast on June 28th if you want to get your question answered. Become a member today to receive an invite. Okay, now on to this Ask Strong Towns conversation with Chuck Marone and Kia Wilson. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the second edition of Ask Strong Towns featuring Chuck Marone, president and founder, and myself, Kia Wilson, director of community engagement. I'm so excited to see you all here. And we had a super great time doing this last time, and we're excited to kick it off again. How are you doing today, Chuck? I'm doing really well. Uh, I'm getting ready for CNU. And so if you could see the office here, it's kind of crazy. I've got stuff strewn all over, and I'm trying to... uh, like check my gear list and make sure I've got every possible right. cord and microphone and recording device and SIM card and everything that I could possibly need. So it's yeah. kind of crazy, but we're getting there. <laughs> and I'm getting ready for our spring member drive, which kicks off on Monday. So I think it's safe to say that we are a buzz in, I won't say Strong Towns headquarters because that's kind of a diffuse place. <laughs> um, yeah, no, things and, are happening in the, yeah. uh, in the interwebs here. Yep. It's true. Well, I, we only have a limited amount of time as usual, so I want to make sure that we kick things off and get to as many questions as we can. Um, we know we've got about 30 people logged in, but let me go ahead and tell those of you who are here now, how it works in case you've never been to an Ask Strong Towns before. So Ask Strong Towns is a webcast. It will later be magically turned through the uh, magic of technology into a podcast. We are going to be taking your questions live. You are welcome to ask us anything that is on your mind about Strong Towns as an organization, how our approach can apply to your place, to, you know, kind of anything under the sun. If you'd like to know what we're reading or what our favorite colors are, I guess go crazy. (laughs) And you can do that by clicking the little button. It should be in, I believe, the top left of your screen. It says question and answer. There's also a chat field if you would like to chat informally with one another or share links if we mention them. Feel free to uh, socialize a little bit over there. Um, But generally speaking, we've got some pre-submitted questions that we're going to kick off on as people are... uh, trickling in, it will sort of model the kind of questions that are a great fit for Ask Strong Towns. You want to keep them generally short, um, generally without links or visuals, because this is going to be a podcast eventually. Um, And think in terms of what 
is a question I can ask that someone out there in another state or another town might be able to relate to. So let's go do ahead. People, and, hey, oh, do people ahead. submit questions to you, Kia? Uh, they're submitting them to the Q&A and no, I'm, I'm just filtering through them. <laughs> I know one of the reasons why we said we wanted to do this was because we just, we've reached like the critical point of getting questions. It used to be like my inbox was full <laughs> and then I kind of turned my inbox over to you and to others and we were trying to tackle them that way and now like everybody's inbox is inundated. So we're trying to find like a respectful way to balance like what we do on a day-to-day basis to make this whole thing work and answering people's questions and being responsive to that. So I appreciate the work you've done to put questions together and you send them to me ahead of time and said, you can look at them or you can't, you don't have to. And I did not. Okay. So, <laughs> so we'll so have go some surprises and, today. <laughs> go ahead and hit me fresh. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think you'll, I think you'll be happy. I threw you some, some hard balls and some soft balls. I know you that's, like both. So. That's the way I like it. All right. So first one comes from Curtis from Chicago. I made the executive decisions not to pronounce anyone's last name today because there are some doozies. Um, But Curtis from Chicago asks, down zonings are a common tool around here for the local aldermen to get what they want. I'm a believer that they make the development process longer, more expensive, and subsequently lead to gentrification. I'd love to get the Strong Towns take on down zonings. And for those of you who might be listening in who are new to the Strong Towns conversation and are asking yourselves, what's a down zoning? Down zoning basically means, for example, you take a neighborhood and you say, okay, you've been able to build apartment buildings here. You're zoned for multifamily use. Um, now you can only build single families. That's an example of a down zoning. And right. Chuck can fill us in on more. Um, also to follow up on the word gentrification, that's a sort of charged word that I know a lot of people have a lot of associations with. I think that this particular um, questioner is talking about gentrification from the point of view of forcing out low-income people um, from the perspective of displacement. So Chuck, I'd love to hear what you think. I know you've written about this a little bit in the past. Yeah. Um, what's the strong town's position on down zonings and what role should they have uh... in our approach? That's a good, I will give you my position. And I think this is one of those things where I think we have had like a lot of, there's a lot of nuance here and a lot of like internal debate and conversation we've had over the years. Um, In general, let's say what like makes sense. In general, we believe, I, I firmly believe that every neighborhood needs to be allowed to grow to the next level of intensity by right. So if you have a neighborhood of single family homes, there should be absolutely nothing that stops someone from walking into city hall at 9 a.m., walking out by noon with a permit to build a duplex in that neighborhood. That, like, that should be non-controversial. There should be no impediments to doing that. Neighbors should not be able to show up and protest that. That's the next increment of intensity. And I was in New York City last week, and it's fascinating because you can walk around Manhattan even Uh, But certainly in Queens where I was, and you can see this is one of the few places in the country where I I think as a general rule, things it's it's messy and it's bureaucratic and it's not necessarily by right the way that I would do it. But what you see is an incremental development pattern where four-story buildings are converted into eight and 10-story buildings, 10-story buildings are converted into 20-story buildings. I I think people mistake... uh, my proposed, you know, my, my, my pushing of incremental as being, you always have to work small. In a place like Manhattan, the next increment is huge. Um, but you, what you do is you see it happening all over the place. 
in, in light of that understanding that every neighborhood needs to be allowed to breathe and grow to the next level, uh, there have been instances where I have recommended down zonings. They're recommendations where I see the level of zoning, uh, and, and generally this is like a planning kind of exercise where the planners will say, this is where we want high density to happen. And they'll go in and they'll take a neighborhood where you have like open surface parking lots and one and two story buildings. And they'll say, you can put 20 story condominium units here. And what happens then is that we tend to get massive amounts of displacement. Th those are not small leaps in the development pattern. And they tend to be very disruptive. And they also, from, from my perspective, tend to suppress investment. They actually make property artificially expensive and tend to suppress the types of investments that you would need to say lower housing prices and make housing more affordable. I, I feel like the question being asked is slightly different than that. Mm -hmm. I feel like the question being asked seems more like we have people who want to, and I'm going to use like defend their neighborhood from change and transformation. And so by down zoning, you can kind of put it under glass and lock it into place. In most cities, when you do that, that will kill the neighborhood. Like the neighborhood will start to die. In some places, and Chicago is one of these, where there's enough demand to be there and there's enough going on, what you can do is in doing that, you essentially create like a supply-demand problem. You severely limit the supply. And with the demand going up, what you do is you artificially increase the underlying property values. And that will result in displacement. That will result in like artificial... Uh, all kinds of kind of nasty side effects. Um, so yes, I, I think that those types of down zonings, those defensive down zonings where we're trying to keep out those people or keep out whatever kind of development we don't look at as being compatible with our neighborhood, I, I think that that is self-destructive. Uh, if you're not allowing the neighborhood to breathe and grow incrementally, you're going to kill it. And you're either going to kill it directly by having disinvestment or you're going to create an artificial land bubble uh, that is going to, you know, result in the, the, the kind of nature of the neighborhood changing so dramatically uh, that it's, it's not going to be helpful. I think that's a great answer. And I think it's a nuanced answer. You know, when I saw this question come through and I, I had the same sort of reaction, which is like, well, when and where yeah. and how? All these things, there's no uniform strong towns position on um, a lot of things because we're looking for a set of questions to ask, which leads to a variety of solutions. Right. I do, I do see, I mean, there are groups, and I don't want to pick on the market urbanist people because I, I really like them. I like their conversation. There's a lot to like about it. Um, but one of the things that I rubbed up against them, like it had a little friction, uh, was this idea that there may be places where downzoning makes sense. And I, I do believe that. I think that there are places. I don't think it's very many. Um, I think in more places, incremental upzoning makes way more sense. Uh, but yeah, I, I think understanding the fundamental of what you're trying to accomplish uh, will help you. Hey, Kitty. <laughs> this is he how was going to make an appearance. So I decided to own it. <laughs> yeah, this is how we work, and uh, we just have cats and dogs and everything else. Yeah, uh, so for those who fun. are eventually going to listen to this on the podcast, you're missing some really adorable <laughs> kittens that are wandering into the screen. So maybe yeah. try the webcast version next time. <laughs> yeah, it's all good.
Yeah. So I have another pre-submitted question from Richard from St. Louis, um, who I know, so I can say his last name is Bose. Um, And it's a short one. Yeah, he's awesome. He is awesome. What what are appropriate things a city should issue bonds for? We get questions about bonds all the time. I thought that was an interesting and very brief question. He had no other follow-up. That's a great, it's a great question. So when cities take on debt, which is what it means by issuing bonds, uh, there are a lot of different reasons why they do that. Here are two that I think are probably the, the, the proper, the, the ones that I would feel the most comfortable with. First, I think if you're issuing bonds for cash flow reasons, um, in other words, we have a big surge in road maintenance we've got to do. Uh, we're not going to tax everybody in a surge and then lower their taxes next year. We're going to issue bonds to, to pay that off and kind of cash flow that over a period of time. I have like no problems with that. The only like, uh, I, I think, point to be made in that is that you have to actually understand that you have a cash flow problem, not just an insolvency problem. A lot of times we get to where we have more road maintenance than we have money to take care of. And so we go out and borrow the money and then do it. And then we just run out of borrowing capacity and then we have neither cash nor borrowing capacity. That's an insolvency problem. If you have a really detailed capital improvements plan, you know how much your roads cost, you know how much your tax base is uh, proportionately, you've got that like figured out and you've got a, a little bit of gap. The way you can tell that people have this figured out is that a cash flow gap is usually like three to five years. If you're bonding road maintenance over 15 years, over 20 years, you're doing it wrong. You're, you're, you're basically like flirting with insolvency. So if you're doing short-term cash flow, cool, go for it. That's a good way to, to issue bonds. Um, I think the other way, and we get a little bit into this, um, I think the moral dimensions of debt, uh, you know, uh, debt itself is full of morals going back through antiquity. When people talked about debt, it was always intertwined with what is moral and what is immoral. I think the, under, the, the key understanding of debt as it becomes public debt is that what you're really doing is you are bringing to the present future uh, ability to consume, to produce, to have flexibility, you're essentially imposing on the future uh, a cost. And that's the opposite of a sense, a sacrifice. And this is kind of the ironic thing about debt is we often clothe it in the idea that we're making an investment today for the future um, as if it's some type of sacrifice for us to take on a bunch of debt that future residents will have to pay. Um, I think it's the exact opposite. I think we have to look at an exact opposite way. Um, So, if we're making an investment today and we're using debt for it, uh, I think two things with that, ha- you know, not a cash flow one, but an actual investment, I think two things have to be a- applicable. First, you have to pay it off in a short period of time. Um, it is, it, in my opinion, immoral to force debt on a future generation uh, for things that they may or may not want. So you have to pay it off. It, 10 years, 12 years, 15 years max, like you have to be responsible for paying this off. Even if it is a big, huge, like we're going to build a bridge and it's going to be here for 200 years. Okay, fine. Pay it off. Like pay it off. Figure out how to do that. You can do it. Pay it off. Um, The other thing is, is if you're taking on debt 
and you're doing it with the assumption that you're making an investment that's going to have a payout, you actually have to have an analysis of how much that payoff is, how that money will be collected and recouped and used to pay off that debt. And then you have to monitor that year after year after year. Like it's not good enough to just say, we're going to do this and we're anticipating $5 million of property value appreciation. And uh, do you get that appreciation? What amount of time do you get it in? Is it actually showing up in there? Uh, Otherwise what you're doing is you're just shifting, you're using that as an excuse to make an investment and you're going to wind up uh, shifting resources from other places. You're going to wind up not fixing a road or a pipe or maintaining an obligation. You're going to wind up, you know, shortchanging the maintenance on your parks or your public buildings or something else. So I, I feel like if we're going to take on debt, we have to be incredibly disciplined about it in a way that we're just not prepared to do today. So this would be my two things. And I actually wrote a story about this. Um, I can't remember the name of the, the article I wrote, but it dealt with, if you just do a st- strong towns and then type debt and cash flow, it will give you like a whole thing about yeah. it. <laughs> Some of our co- your coverage on accrual accounting, I think in particular, um, I would encourage people to learn that word and learn what we mean by yeah. it because it's been really useful for me. That was one of the first articles that I really connected with at Strong Towns. It's so, funny because as cities, we do accrue obligations and we don't account for them anywhere. We operate on a cash basis. And, you know, it would be as if like you have a, I have, I have these two daughters. It would be as like these daughters are born and I don't anticipate them going to college at all. <laughs> like I don't, I don't set any money aside. I'm, I plan to retire someday. I don't set any money aside. It's just all cash. And then I get to like, all of a sudden I have this huge bill. Like, no, no, as public, right. we can account for these things ahead of time. Like we know, we know that road needs to be fixed in 20 years. Like we can account for that. Yeah. So we have a live question here from Mike Hamper, which I think is a really good one. What resources are available for a small town without a big planning department or budget to review their zoning code and best practices? Thanks. I never actually thought about the money that actually goes into making those systemic changes. I've never, do do you know anything about that? I'm curious. Um, I know way too much about this. Oh, great. I know like, I know way, (laughs) no, I know way too much like in an unhealthy way. Um, so people may not know this, but in 2000, I went, I left the engineering firm I work for and I went back to graduate school. And when I was in graduate school, cities that I had worked with started to call me and say, would you come help us out with this or this? Cause when I was doing engineering, I was also doing a lot of planning. I was a bad planner at that point. Um, and, uh, so going back to school to get this degree, a lot of places I had been doing playing with wanted me to come help them. And by the time I got done with graduate school, I had started my own planning firm and I actually hired two of my fellow students to help me out. So we had this small kind of boutique planning company uh, working in small towns and rural areas across Minnesota. Let me just say, there's no money for doing this. Um, this is like a thankless job that doesn't pay, uh, that I'm still like literally paying off debt from uh, in terms of like running this business. Um, this was like a labor of love, but it was never like something that was lucrative or made a lot of sense from a consulting standpoint. If you look on the city standpoint, the reason is because these cities have no money. They're like totally, completely broke. Uh, they don't have any money at all. And the little bit of money they have gets squandered on, I was just going to say these pipe dreams. Uh, that's a, like a good way to put it. These big kind of boondoggle projects 
uh, that kind of get forced on them by the state and federal government as like the way to, you know, fix your town, the way to create instant growth. We don't have an incremental mindset in small towns the way that, the way that we should and I think the way that would be most beneficial. Here's my recommendation today. Um, when we get into a small town, when we get into, a, 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 you know, and I'm talking, I worked in cities that were as small as like 85 people. Um, but I mean, even up to like 5,000, 10,000, even 25,000, like the area that I, I live right now. Um, none of this is beyond your capacity to grasp and understand. Um, I will say this, you know, when, when I got my engineering degree, there's a lot of technical things that engineers have to go through. Uh, I mean, you do take calculus, you do take physics. Actually, sometimes you use some of that. There's some thought processes that you use in that way. There's some very technical things that go into engineering from time to time. The bulk of it, no, but, but every now and then. When I got my planning degree, there was nothing that I learned in planning school that you could not learn if you just sat down with some books and some lectures and like, you know, went to CNU, for example, this week, uh, went to APA and sat through some sessions. Like none of this is beyond our capacity to grasp. And so I think from a small town standpoint, what I would say is if you're struggling, um, where are the resources? They're not cash resources. The resources are like in your community. Um, you need to sit down and read your own zoning code. You need to sit down and read your own comp plan. You need to go and, and look at places that you think are doing well and read theirs and then see like, what's the difference? Like, what can I grasp from this? Uh, are there nuanced things that we can do? And then I think, don't be shy about digging into this and, and, and pretending you can do it yourself. Because the reality is if you kind of dedicate yourself, you actually can do it. Um, I, I'm not trying to like run down planners and denigrate, you know, half of my professional background. Um, but I do think that we've made this kind of mystical in a way that it really doesn't need to be. And that as particularly in a small town, you actually have to do this yourself because no one is going to be there to help you do it. I can't tell you how many cities like the planner was the deputy clerk who could get 50 cents more an hour if she also processed permits. So, I mean, you're not like you're, 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 these are not bad people, but you're not talking about like some PhD planner who, you know, has done like in-depth things. You're raising the bar from low to, you know, whatever competence you can get it to. And if you're actually care enough to do it, you're going to do a way better job than anybody else will. So roll up your sleeves and do it. I like that. That's a good answer. Yeah, I, I'm. It's a scary answer, but it's a good one. It's a scary answer, but it's, <laughs> I think it's truth, you know. Right, um, totally. And a, a good planner can help you out a lot, but they help you out by asking questions. Um, and I think, you know, I, I, I feel like, I don't want to be like too self-promotional here, but I feel like at Strong Towns, the communities we're creating online are designed to help people ask a more sophisticated set of questions about their place. Uh, more than they are to give like here's the here's the the archetypal strong town zoning code for a you know a town of five thousand. No, no. But here are questions you should be asking and and trying to figure out. And here's like a whole universe of people who are also struggling with this. And what can we learn from each other? 
Yeah. Well, that's a, an interesting transition into the next question I have um, that talks about some of the ways offline that we are helping communities, which we can't do at a great scale because we're a small team. But Dan from Holland, Michigan asks, many are excited about the Strong Towns uh, Principal Applications Pilot Project in Akron, Ohio. Mm. What happens if it's a resounding success and demand skyrockets. So what happens to the future of Strong Towns? Um, and I think this would be a good jumping off point to first say, what is our pilot project in Akron? Right. Um, right. And I'm curious if, you know, you see this as a transition point for our organization. We've talked about this internally, but I think people yeah. are curious. I don't know. It, it freaks me out and keeps me up late at night. <laughs> it, really do, it really does. Yeah. Because I'll, I'll say this. If you go back to like um, 2012, 2013, like the early days of Strong Towns, we were trying to figure out like, what, what should we do? What is this thing? All of a sudden people are reading this blog. All of a sudden people want us to come speak and do events at their places. Like why? What, what, I don't know. I mean, quite literally, I was out saying this to communities around where I live and they were kicking me out of the meetings, like disinviting me. And now all of a sudden there's like thousands of people that want to have this conversation. Why? Why? And uh, so it took us a while to figure out like what, what we should do. And we very intentionally decided uh, that we were not going to do consulting work. Um, we were not going to uh, do, and, and, and not because it wasn't effective, but because it was effective in like a very small range. And like mm -hmm. the broader movement, which we saw as creating huge amounts of change, suffered when we focused on one small place. Um, so now to Akron, uh, and we were asked to, um, I gave a talk in, I can't remember the city that was near Akron and some Akron people were there and they said, this is fascinating. Would you come give this conversation in our community? And I was able to do that and I was able to engage with them. And what I saw right away was that this is a place that our message really closely aligns with. Uh, when I go to Akron, I look around the neighborhoods and I just see overwhelming potential. Just it, it's it's almost um, like crippling how uh, th like the, the 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 public investments they've done and the public investments that would pay off the way that their neighborhoods are in decline and the potential of those neighborhoods. There's the disparity is so great that it's almost like painful to me to be there and see like, look at this fantastic place. If we just saw this differently, we just did this differently. And so we were asked like, if we could help them for a year, what would that look like? And it, I think to be true to our mission and to be true to our movement and what we are doing, uh, we, we were flat out front, like we can't do consulting. Like I can't come and like help you design the street and we can't come and help you put in codes in place and stuff. But what we can do is we can help seed a conversation, uh, a conversation that would help kind of move the needle and, 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 and shift things, not only at city hall and not only amongst like activists and people who are involved, but to the extent that we can in the broader community and help the broader community embrace a, a different approach. We're uh, April, May, I mean, we're like two and a half months into this, into a 12-month project. Um, we're starting to see some signs of like momentum independent of us, which the idea is like after a year, we're going to stay involved, but we would like the momentum to be going without, you know, kind of as a, a, a not needing a lot of nurturing. 
um, have this conversation kind of take off. I'm a little bit scared of the implications of that uh, mm. because on one end, if it takes off and it does really great, um, I think that's awesome. And I'm going to be really proud of uh, the, the, the people that are there now doing great work. And there are many, many, many. If they find their job easier a year from now, um, that to me is like the greatest measurement of success we have. If they find like the path for them is like now paved in gold and like easy to walk down as opposed to like a constant day after day struggle just to get a stupid building permit, you know, done or like a, a, a like a, just a, a simple thing completed. Um, if that's the result, then we have created huge success. Um, the fear that I have and the reservation that I have is uh, it always seems like the more, the more we do, the more demand there, like, you know, uh, people are like, wow, this worked really well. Let's do more. And I feel like we're trying to figure this out along with them. And I guess I'm not, con- I, I'm here. I'm like a terrible salesman for strong towns. I, <laughs> I'm confident that our message has an impact and I'm confident that we know what we're doing in terms of sharing it with people. Um, This is a new thing for us. And I'm not like wholly confident that, uh, you know, like I, 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 how do I want to say this? I'm, I'm a little bit nervous of like what comes next is what I'm saying. Mm. Um, Because we have got, I mean, we've gotten half a dozen places that want to do the same thing. And I'm like, let's chill out and make sure that like we know what we're doing and how we're doing it and that we do it well. And I guess this is a little bit my like not really native nonprofit kind of thinking. I know a lot of nonprofits are like, let's just throw money at things and experiment and figure it out. And I actually think like that's a good nonprofit model. I actually come from this like consulting model and Mm -hmm. this kind of prudent Minnesota model and I'm like, what's the smallest amount of money we can spend to figure out if this actually works or not? And then how do we scale that like to the next bit and the next bit? And I actually feel like we're getting pushed to uh, scale it all like way more quickly than maybe I feel like we're competently yeah. able to do. So that's, that's my like underlying fear. Maybe I, it took me a while to give voice to that, but that's what I... <laughs> that's what I fear at night because I, I don't want to get out and have like, you know, five cities we're doing this in and then realize like we had something we didn't do quite right or whatever. And, and I think like other people in the organization would slap me alongside the head and say, go ahead and make that mistake. <laughs> um, yeah. I feel this like, uh, you know, sense of ownership maybe that is disproportionate to what I should, but I, I, I feel like, I want to do a really good job in Akron before we agree to take on exactly. like four or five more of these. Right. You know? And we're in the process right now. I mean, I think we got into it. And the first thing that I realized is that we're missing a team member here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're trying to build something and we all kind of have our fingers in it. Um, but what we really need is like a, a team member whose job is community building. And right now today, we just sent out a, a first round questionnaire to 119 people who want to be the next Strong Towns team member uh, who's going to help us do online community building. It's um, coming out after this webcast. So if you're an applicant, don't right. worry. <laughs> like, <it> so, 
So, you know, th- this is like, I, you know, I, I would hate to have had like six of these going on and then grasp this, like, you know, so we're, as always, the thing for us is we box far beyond our weight class. I mean, we, one of the reasons why we're so effective with a 300 and some thousand dollar budget is because we've learned how to squeeze like every penny out of what we do. And the reason is because we've not gone like rolling down the hill full speed. We've actually tried to like incrementally practice what we preach. And I think it's made us really effective, but it also, when things start to build on you this fast, it also freaks me out. And I think, you know, maybe disappoints people who want us to do more, more quickly than we're really able to responsibly handle. I think we will know when we are in Manhattan though, <laughs> like when our increments are going to be bigger. I don't think we're necessarily yeah. Manhattan now and we want to grow slowly. <laughs> well, I can tell you, yeah. I can tell you that like just for people out there who have been with us a long time, um, the next thing we need is someone to do management around here because that's been my job and you can't do that when you're on the road four days a week, when you get in the office and you have like, you know, six phone calls you have to take during the day, three media interviews. I mean, I literally, before we got this, I got off the phone 15 minutes before we started with a media interview with a, with a Latvian national press <laughs> in Riga, Latvia. Um, this world, this is nutty. Like, I, I feel this is nutty. And we actually need someone to help us uh, organize this stuff. That's going to be the next thing we do. Yeah. Well, and then, and then we can do the Manhattan-style leaps. You know. <laughs> well, let's pivot a little bit because I know it stresses you out to think about this stuff. And let's go to a live question from Michael Pinkley, um, who asks... Is there ever a good TIF project proposal? TIF stands for tax increment financing, which if you don't know what that is, it's when a city, um, in my city, it's the Board of Aldermen is the one who's approving these, Mm -hmm. um, approves a developer to pay either no taxes or a portion of their taxes for a period of time um, in order to, in the form of tax credits, fund a project that they think wouldn't otherwise happen. Um, so my glass, if so, what are the shortlist items to consider? What's the Strongtown's TIF test? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a fantastic question because I've been really critical of TIF. I, I called TIF like the devil's tool of decline or something like that. And, <laughs> yeah, I love it. <laughs> made people really angry with me. Um, I think it's. In, I think you can right away split TIF into two categories: one being greenfield and one being redevelopment. And right away, like greenfield TIF to me is absurd. The idea that you would pay someone uh, essentially to you know come to you instead of someone else. Uh, you know, we have a word for paying someone to pretend they love you, um, and it's not like a word we want to associate. You know, with uh, with success, right? So, you know, to me, the greenfield development is, I, I, I have never seen an instance where that makes sense with TIFF. Let's talk about redevelopment for a second. Um, I, 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 I think that to categorically say no TIFF in redevelopment areas is wrong. That being said, when we look at most instances where it's used, it is used as a way to kind of st- staunch your stem stop uh decline so we have a neighborhood in decline and the idea is that we come in with tiff as a rescue remedy 
to improve something that would otherwise continue to decline and then hopefully have that something like lift everything up around it. And while that occasionally works, it really generally doesn't. And it's also, I think, attacking the wrong problem. The problem is the actual causes of decline. Why is this neighborhood in decline? And generally, when you look at it, what you find is that it's a series of small things. It's a series of like, you know, why are you getting a capital flight from this neighborhood? Um, you know, I think the, uh, the Oswego, New York conversation where they're making like small little investments to like, you know, restore confidence in a neighborhood uh, is the right kind of mindset. Often when we see neighborhoods in decline, it's a confidence problem, not a like neighborhood integrity kind of problem. So how do we start to reverse confidence? And I think that TIFF is like the exact wrong way to do that because TIFF just reinforces that this place sucks. It's going downhill. And the only way we can do it is like massive rescue remedies. So where does TIFF work in a redevelopment scenario? The ones that I've seen that are the best are the ones where you have like some type of environmental degradation issue that is just too difficult to deal with in a neighborhood in ascension. So, so let's say we can get the neighborhood not declining anymore, but actually like improving. What you might find in that neighborhood is that there is a place where there was an old dry cleaner or an old gas station, uh, or in the case of the rail yard here that I'm in, a creosote plant where like there's massive contamination in the ground. And even with like property values going up, there's nobody who can take the risk, uh, put up the capital and do the things that are needed uh, to remediate those old environmental issues without some type of subsidy. Um, in those cases, I, I see, I've seen it work really well. In places where you have old derelict buildings, and, and, and this is a slippery slope because I've seen buildings that I looked at and said, there's no way they can restore that. And then someone genius comes in and restores it. Um, but there are cases where buildings are full of asbestos or full of lead or full of whatever, and they can't be remediated. Those are like point sources where I think a short tiff might make some sense. Mm-hmm. But again, we're talking about really nuanced things in neighborhoods that are not in terminal decline. If you're looking at TIF as a rescue remedy, you're looking at it the wrong way. Mm-hmm. If you're looking at TIF as a competitive uh, tool to make you more competitive with the neighboring city, you're looking at it the wrong way. Does that make sense, Kia? That makes total sense. And as someone who lives in a city that way overuses TIF by almost every measure, um, I live in St. Louis, Missouri, and we tend to pour our TIF into our central corridor, um, into subsidizing either greenfield development or in our most productive neighborhoods to bring in corporations. Um, I, I really appreciate you. Get, just gave me some language that I'm going to take with me. So well, it, it's interesting because <laughs> we actually had here in town someone who was going to build something. And then the Economic Development Authority came to them and said, you qualify for TIF. And they're like, you know, okay, I wasn't like, <laughs> I wasn't expecting a tax subsidy, but right. if you're going to give it to me, like, I'm not going to turn it down. Right. Um, exactly. I think most, I, I've told this a few times and, and uh, I, I don't usually tell this because it kind of clouds the story. Mm-hmm. Um, the Taco John's story that I tell in the Cribside chat, that's kind of become famous strong town stuff. People around the country stop at Taco John's and take selfies and send them to me. It's kind of fun. Uh, (laughs) The Taco John's here in town, the way I present it in the curbside chat is as if there were no tax subsidy. 
the Taco Johns to tear down that old and blighted block and rebuild the Taco Johns, as bad as it is without a subsidy, they actually got a 26-year tax subsidy. Wow. Yeah, a longer tax subsidy than the building will actually last. They actually got a 26-year <laughs> tax subsidy in order to do that. So when I show like the city is collecting 78% more taxes from the old and blighted block than the Taco Johns, it's, it's actually way worse than that. Way, way, way worse than that. Um, wow. That's if they did. Yeah. So you look at that and you're just like, this is the problem in that neighborhood is that the neighborhood is in decline. We need to go out and deal with the issues that are causing decline, the lack of investment, uh, the lack of the investment being scaled to the humans in the people that live there as opposed to this like rescue remedy of let's, let's wipe out blight and get this, you know, new taco joint because somehow that looks like success. I'm going to go to a question from Joel Dixon that um, I think is a really, it was actually asked in the webcast uh, last month and I am saving all of the ones that we're being asked right now for the future because we always get way more good questions that we can possibly answer in an hour and change. Um, but Joel sort of hit a nerve, I think, um, because I had a lot of people asking the exact opposite question as well. Okay, sweet. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Joel's question was, how does one balance strong towns incrementalism with the ossification brought about by historic preservation? Is incrementalism mm. diametrically opposed to historic preservation and or vice versa? I also got three or four questions from historic preservation advocates saying, clearly historic preservation <laughs> is completely in line with the Stonktown's message. Um, yeah. How do I make that connection for people and show them? Um, so this is a contentious topic mm. in the Stonktown's universe. Mm. I would love to hear your thoughts. Um, I think this is a really hard one. I, I yeah. do think this is a really hard one. Be, and, and it's a hard one because in the context of where we're at today, what we're really talking about, the, the role that historic preservationists have played uh, in, the, in the prior decades ha has been to stop the destruction of things that clearly should not be destroyed. Right now in my hometown, I started a, a, a group to try to stop the school district from ripping down a 1930s elementary school. And the school district is done with it. They're moving on. They're not going to use the building. Uh, they've decided that it would be better as a parking lot. Th this is absurd. And the thing is, is the school district has put out all these reports saying that, you know, it would take millions to reuse this building, da, 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 da. They said the same thing about a different school that was built in the same exact year. That building now is being used as a school without millions of dollars being spent. And it's got kids there. It's a charter school. It's working just fine. I'm highly suspect of this. The historic preservationists have been awesome at coming in and, and helping people give voice to the idea that we shouldn't just be tearing down everything all the time. Um, the, the, the tension becomes, what happens when you win that battle? Like, what, what happens when you, you get, like, the, 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 the battle is won. People agree that we shouldn't just tear down things. We should love these places. They're, they're worthy. We should do something with them. What happens then? And I think the historic preservationist conversation has had some good answers for this, but I also think they've kind of struggled because their DNA has been, it's a, it's a little bit like, you know, I grew up in the 80s and we all hated the commies. And then all of a sudden, then the Soviet Union falls and they're our friends. And you're like, okay, are they our friends now? As younger people come up, they don't have this like Cold War baggage that like my parents have because they lived through 
you know, hiding under your chair, practicing nuclear bombs and Khrushchev pounding his, you know, shoe on the thing. Uh, they don't have those hangups. And so they're able to see things in a, in a fresher way. And I kind of feel like time will solve some of these things. But in the meantime, we have this transition from the people who were fighting to stop us from tearing things down, now saying, how do we make productive use of it? And when we look at that, I, I feel like a lot of the, um, the rules that we've come up with uh, are just, are, are, a lot of them are not workable. I mean, the idea that something should be kind of to be preserved, historic preservation, to have official designations and, and protection, they need to somehow be put under glass and have some like absolutely 100% authentic way of, of dealing with them. I'm going, to use, uh, I'm going to use an example that I've spent a lot of time thinking about that I think will generate some discomfort amongst people and because it, it, it generates discomfort among, in me. And I'm not sure how to resolve this. But I was in Charleston last year, the year before. Um, Charleston is like an amazing place. And if you go to the historic part of Charleston, you see a place in, in your your gut just says like, we can never let this go. Like we have to preserve this because you've got this area that is just mind blowing. And then as soon as you get outside of it, it turns into like the crappiest junk that America's ever built. It's really nasty, but that core part is just gorgeous. But you walk through there and like the homes are these small little homes are worth 2 million, 4 million, 5 million. It's a museum piece. It's not actually like a city. And so I've asked myself, like, if, if strong towns were, like, to be applied here rigorously, what should happen? And what should happen is that that core of Charleston that is beautiful and gorgeous should go from being a two- and three-story version of Charleston to a six- and eight-story version of Charleston. In other words, it should become like a Milan, like a Venice, like, a, you know, like the next level of intensity, but here's the compensation for that. Instead of getting outside of that and having it be just miles of junk, you know, miles of like the standard stuff, there should actually be miles of what Charleston looks like today surrounding Charleston, right? Like it, it, should, it should have a development pattern that looks like what's there today should expand, you know, many, many, many places. Now, amidst that, there may be specific buildings that have historical meaning, like this was the governor of this, or this was, you know, a place where they did that. And those things maybe need to be preserved from like a national archive kind of standing. You know, maybe there's some historic reasons why we would keep that. I mean, I was in just a while back in, in um, Paul Revere's house. Like, don't tear that down. Like, that has meaning. And I was in the, 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 the church where they had the one if by land, two if by sea, uh, you know, candles. Like, don't tear that down. That's like a monument. Like, let's keep that. That's a gorgeous building. But the idea that you would um, not allow a place to breathe and grow um, as a whole, I, I think you're just condemning not only the place itself to like a, a level of dysfunction, but all the area around it that should also be evolving and changing, you're robbing that of energy that it should have. So I, I do think there's some tension there. And I, I think the takeaway, if like if this, if you were a news reporter and we were having this conversation, the headline would be Chuck Marone thinks that Charleston should be raised and rebuilt in a, 
six-story way. I'm, I'm not suggesting that. I'm suggesting that there is a tension here, and I don't know exactly how to make it work uh, because we have not really resolved the underlying dysfunction of our development pattern. I think if we had resolved that, we would see things like more like my time spent in Italy where they had new buildings, but they also had great historic buildings and they found a great way to blend the two together in a way that was honest and true to the history, but also authentic to the place. I think that's really well said. Thank you. I think I, a lot I, of people are excited to get some clarity on that. I struggle and with even it. if that clarity is unclear. Right. So <laughs> I'm going to, um, we have a question from John, Perkins that has a little bit to do with the question I got pre-submitted from Alex Klein. So John asked, local elections are coming up this fall and some candidates are wondering about how to introduce Strong Towns concepts without scaring voters off. Thoughts on how to campaign on Strong Towns. <laughs> Alex asked, um, we are deep into our state government primary season. If you could get a candidate to read only two articles to get the essence of the Strong Towns process, mm. what would they be? I think those are kind of a good pair. So if we yeah, could answer are. them together, that would be good. Um, I, 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 first of all, I think it should be said, like, I am not a politician. And <laughs> I'm, I'm really not. And I'm the last person you want to take political advice from. It's funny because as I've thought about uh, you know, how I would approach things in an election season from a strong town standpoint. I've talked to John Reuter on our board, who is like a political creature, like he understands politics a lot better. And he'll just say like, that's an absurd idea. Like what you just said <laughs> is really dumb. And you know, I respect him. I think he's probably right. Like my core gut instincts are not uh, like well, well versed for winning an election. So here's, if, if, if I were interested in doing this, here's, here's what I would do. I would look at the campaigns of people who I think did this well. The governor of North Dakota. The governor of North Dakota is like a massive Strong Towns advocate. And while he didn't run on a Strong Towns campaign, like he didn't say, like, I'm the Strong Towns candidate. If you look at his stuff and the way he talks about things and the way he presents things and the way he goes about uh, communicating, it is clearly like deeply influenced by Strong Towns. Um, I mean, he has told me as much, but when you look at his stuff, you can see that here's someone who communicates this really well. I'm going to go to the opposite end of the political spectrum, and I'm going to talk about Joseph Bray Ali, whose campaign imploded at the end, um, and it did for, for a variety of reasons that, you know, we, could, I, we don't need to get into because they're not germane okay. to this conversation. But I look at the way... I was really inspired by him and I remain friends with him. He is a good man. He's a good person. Um, I was inspired by his campaign because in a very, uh, let me put it this way. I'm from Minnesota. I'm from rural Minnesota. Like I get the governor of North Dakota. Like when he's talking, these are my people he's talking to. And like, I get that conversation. Joseph Bray Ali is from like a neighborhood in LA that looks nothing like anything I have ever experienced. Like I, I mean, I've experienced it, but like, I don't live in a place like that. I don't know the people of that neighborhood in an intimate way, the way I know people intimately in my neighborhood. All of a sudden, here's a person who is taking our thoughts and our principles and interpreting them 
in his way in his community and doing videos and doing conversations and doing talks and pointing out examples and, and really like reshaping the message for his place. And, and I thought it was genius. I thought it was brilliant. And I learned a ton about how our message plays in other parts of the country just by watching and listening to him over and over and over. So if I were running for office, I would, I would, I would get the book Little Bets and I would read the chapter about Chris Rock, where it talks about how Chris Rock, before he does the HBO special sharing his comedy, goes and works little clubs with like 10 people audiences and tries out jokes in a small way and figures out what works. I would start like that. I would say, here's what I know of Strong Towns. Here's how I would communicate that. And let me talk to people about it and figure out what works in your community and then scale that up to a, you know, a scale where it, it works for your people. Um, the Strong Towns message is going to look different in District 1 in LA than it looks in South Fargo. It's going to look very different in a neighborhood in Seattle than it does in one in Dallas. That's the reality. And I think if I pretended that I knew like exactly what you should say, I, I would not be genuine to like your people. You got to figure that out. So the, the other side of this question was what two articles would I recommend? Yeah. Um, you know, I had a little bit of time to prep for this, so I can take a swing at it while why, you're thinking, why don't, if you'd like. <laughs> I, I've actually gotten to the point where I'm like overwhelmed with like articles to recommend. Um, <laughs> sure, sure. Because the other side of this is like, every time I read an article, I'm like, you know, that I wrote like a year ago or two years ago, I'm like, that's pretty good, but it's lacking like these five things that I want right. to add to it now. So right. what would you exactly. say? Um well, I, I came up with one article from me and one article from you because that just seemed appropriate. Um, the first one is a, probably our most popular post of all time. Like, like, please correct me if I'm wrong, but The Real Reason Your City Has No Money by Jack Maroon. And yeah. that article um, basically spells out in pretty clean language with a compelling graphic that is just like instantaneous to understand uh, why overinvestment in infrastructure um, is creating huge municipal budget problems for communities around the country. I think it's a compelling message that basically shows like this should be on your priority list. This is urgent and this is vital. And it gives um, some really good language that I think anyone can understand. The reach of that post alone, I think, is evidence for um, how easy it is to talk to people about these things when you have their attention for two, three minutes. And that's right. about the amount of time that you have. It also is a good entry point article to start exploring lots of other things about strong town. So yeah, I really, I want the politician to read a hundred articles. So I would give them that one first because right. we see people tend to click through. Yeah. The other one I would recommend from myself, not to pat myself on the back, but because I've been told that this has been, um, helpful to people who are looking to run for office is, um, so you want to build a strong town. It's an article that I wrote that I give a lot of credit to a organizing group that I took a seminar with. And it shows you how to basically using strong towns principles, narrow down to an issue and then 
an issue cut is what you call it, um, which is like a specific segment of that issue, that's really relevant to your community. That is taking the Strong Town's overall principles that we're talking about trends and applying it specifically to this issue is what needs to be solved today. Um, and I think that sort of skill, which is hard, and as I realized as I took this seminar that I didn't have it, is at the core of creating a political platform and at the, cre at the core of creating, even if you're not running for office, a community organizing strategy. So those are my two. Right. I think as you're talking, it just occurred to me that uh, Rachel has asked John Reuter to write a little bit about some of these topics running for office. And, and John wrote one I want to say it was like two months ago that I thought was incredible. Uh, it was about how to communicate with your elected officials. And I, I can't okay. remember That's the name line. of it, but it was so good because it, it really said, um, I, I think it started with the framework of these are like, here's the priorities of people who are in office. Like here's what they're hearing. Here's what they're bombarded with here's what the, you know, their priorities are. And it's not like they're selfishly, like, how do I self-promote? How do I get reelected? Like, you know, John starts from a standpoint, and I agree with him, that most people who run for office are like good, decent, compassionate people who have things that they want to genuinely get done. They're not all about themselves. Uh, John said, in that environment, here's how you actually communicate complex ideas to them. And uh, wow, that was, a, that was a powerful piece for me. And uh, I suspect, you know, that, that would be one that I would recommend as well. That's great. I love both of those too. Um, so do we have time for two more questions, do you think, Chuck, or just um, one? I'm curious I'm doing, to I'm doing okay on time. Okay. Uh, so let's, uh, let's, we can take a couple more. I feel okay. bad because like this is literally, you know, I, I, I think over time as we do this more, Hopefully, if people ask questions that are repeats, we can refer them back to prior episodes. Exactly. Um, yeah. So we're hopefully building like a repository of Q&A here. Mm -hmm. uh, so I feel bad that we have such a backlog. I'm hoping we get through the backlog, you know, doing this every six or weeks or so. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm trying to keep an eye on that. Yeah. Well, one question from kind of the backlog, it's a pre-submitted question, was from Daniel from Tualatin, Oregon. I don't know if that's how your name is pronounced. Sorry about that. Um, I said no last names, but I can't avoid the down names. Um, and I thought it would be good to do one question from someone who's looking for advice about a specific community but I think this will apply to a lot of towns around the country. So Daniel asks, my city leadership has been slow to confront our housing issues. What would you say to a local leader to make them see that housing is a problem that deserves their attention and priority, particularly when those impacted are underrepresented among the small town political elite? And um, I have a little bit more information from Daniel that specifically, there is a high cost of housing in this area and not a lot of jobs. Um, what would you say to so how do we get elected officials to care about affordable housing yeah or just housing generally <laughs> um i don't i don't know let me yeah. point out let me point out something that I, I think we often overlook um but for me like someone who focuses on numbers and finance and kind of like human incentives is just so patently obvious that i i, I don't know why it isn't part of our I don't know why it isn't like an obsession with our conversation. If you are a local unit of government, particularly if a large part of your revenue comes from property taxes, but even if it comes from sales taxes, but mostly if it comes from property or land taxes, 
you benefit directly from having artificially high property values. There is zero incentive mm. for government to drive down property values, zero. Yeah. Um, if you own a house, you benefit today from having high, artificially high property values. You, you, just, you just do. Yeah. And, and so in a sense, what you're saying to a system is that, uh, you know, we've, we've essentially rigged this system. And, and I, I use that word rigged. I know it is, uh, it, it kind of connotates someone like fixing it, like you would fix a fight or a ball game or something. Mm-hmm. I don't mean necessarily like the fixes in, I just mean like every incentive in this system from the way the federal reserve buys mortgages to the way the government has created a secondary market for housing mm-hmm. to the way we subsidize with interest rates to the way we, um, you know, do securitization all the way down to local zoning and, and, and you know, local uh, street investment. All of this stuff is designed for one outcome, and that is to artificially increase property values. Because essentially, like, our whole economy runs on that. It, like, all your, your city government runs on that. Your, your uh, you know, economy, people's ability to consume runs on that. Like it all, it's all like propped up in this like crazy system. I'm starting to get like conspiratorial Chuck, like hysterical Chuck. Housing values drive me nuts because what we have created this massive system to drive them up. And and let me just step back for a second and say, I, I do this a lot when I'm talking, I will say to everybody, do word association now. Um, 2001 to 2008 was a housing and people say bubble. And I'm like, okay, great. You passed that test. 2010 to 2018 is a housing and people look at you and they're like, ah, recovery. Yeah. It was a housing recovery. Um, here's the way that chart goes. I'll try to do it backwards. So it, it looks right on the screen. Here's housing prices over time. Here's 2008. It's a spike and, for the and podcast. Here's 2018. So in relation to this, like now you're way, way up in the stratosphere again. We're calling that a recovery? A recovery to what? Like a, reco- a recovery to insanity. So a, a, a little bit like the question to me is voicing a deeper frustration with our entire economic system, which I think has been... I don't want to get too meta on this because it's actually like a simple question and I'm taking it out into the stratosphere. (laughs) I think if you look, if I were to summarize uh, post-war American development in terms of economics in like an elevator speech, I would say one generation of sugar high, one generation of debt to try to sustain that. And then one generation of like rules barred, like no holds barred, fanatical try growth and intervention to try to keep it all propped up. And the byproduct of that is this insane disproportionate level of housing prices we have today. Um, how do you get someone to want to change something when they benefit from it not changing, which is the, the situation for every government in this country and really every property owner in this country. And, and I, I, I lose a lot of sleep over that question because, you know, my answer is you can't until things get really bad. 
So you see things like in Seattle where they can't have a government council meeting without all kinds of protesters showing up screaming at them about housing prices. And they've actually like undertaken now to start to try to deal with housing prices. I don't agree with what they're doing and I don't think what they're doing is going to be particularly helpful, but they're giving like the illusion of actually trying to do something. Um, you even see like with SB 827 in, in San Francisco where they were going to go in and say, you know, local zoning can't stop you from building higher density in these places where we have transit stops. And the people who advocated that were housing advocates who are like, we're getting priced out of everything. Um, the pushback on that was this will destroy property values. You know, this will like crater, mm -hmm. this will not only change the character of my neighborhood, but this is going to have like dramatic impacts on uh, taxation and local governments and the way, yeah, it is. We've created like an absolute catastrophic mess. I, I feel like um, this is the fragility that we're saying you have to start building strong towns because of this. So because of this mess we have, you have to get, we actually have to get a different model up and running because this fragile system is not viable long-term. And, uh, you know, I don't really know how to, I feel like it, from my vantage point, the question is almost, how do we make this system like a little friendlier around the edges? And how do we get politicians to agree to make it a little friendlier around the edges? And I'm more of the mindset, how do we get something like up and running that's a viable alternative that can take the place when the system collapses and everybody is in abject panic? And if, if you think that's like a stretch, 2008 was abject panic at the local government level, abject panic, and it wasn't even bad. It wasn't even bad. You start resetting property values by 25, 50, 75%, and you're talking, and, and, and by the way, I don't think that unreasonable at all. Uh, you're talking about a, a entirely different economic system, and I don't know what that even looks like. So I'm, uh, I'm not very helpful with my answer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's actually a pretty good alley-oop into what I thought would be our last question. Um, so we've mentioned John Reuter for the, a couple of times. He is a member of our board. He's very friendly. So this question is said with love is <laughs> the preamble. And he said a lot of your no, articles. No, no, no. What? You, is, this a, <laughs> is this a question that John has submitted? John is listening right now. Oh, come on. <laughs> he does not get to ask questions. It's actually a great question that I think a lot of people might have after your last answer. So a lot of your articles and your webcast answers are depressing. <laughs> That's what John asked. What gives you the most hope for America's towns and cities? I would say that John Reuter gives me a lot of hope. <laughs> um, He's a great guy. I, I think that that's a fair, I think that that's a fair statement. And I have to say that like, I am uh, not depressed at all. I'm like incredibly optimistic about this country. I'm incredibly optimistic about our future. Um, I think if we went back a decade, I was very depressed. Like I, I mm -hmm. felt like alone. I felt like I was seeing things and I, either I was crazy or like this world was really messed up and I had no like way to deal with it. Um, what I see today is I see people, more and more people every day uh, taking ownership of their places, realizing that like the rescue remedy is not coming. Nobody else has this you've got to do it. And not only do you have to do it, but you actually can do it. Like the things that you need to do to make your place work are within your reach, within your grasp. And I see people in big places and small places taking this upon themselves to actually make their places better. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I'm not under any illusion that this is going to be easy or that the transition that, uh, that we're going through as we come to grips with decades of bad, bad investment is going to be either pain-free or fun. Um, but, but the fear, the abject panic that I have that as we go through this, there's no other viable model. Uh, there's nobody else talking about a, a, a way to bring prosperity to people. There's no, uh, there's no, I, had, I don't have that at all. I look around and I see people uh, doing miraculous things every day with very little, getting like hardly any accolades for it, but continuing on because they love their place. They love the people around them. They're embedded with neighbors and, and, and people who care. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm massively inspired by block level America and what people are doing, particularly in some of the most desperate places in this country. And, and I think that as things get more difficult in some ways, there's a great model there for us to learn from and to copy and to adapt to our places that gives me an endless amount of hope. That and I am, I am kind of this, there's, a, there's an offshoot of, and I, I, Jim Kunstler's called this like the Jiminy Cricket syndrome. And he said that like derogatory, you know, like if you wish it, it can happen. Um, there's an offshoot of that that you see in like the automated vehicle people where they're like, you know, uh, or, the, or the peak oil, you know, antagonists, not the people who believe in peak oil, but the people who are like, you know, we will solve all these problems with technology and ingenuity, and it just takes American spirit and know-how, and we will, you know, invent a way to feed the world, and we'll invent a way to have clean energy, and once things get tough, you know, that's when Americans get going. Um, I, there's a part of that that I find delusional, but there's a part of it that I absolutely ascribe to. And the part that I absolutely ascribe to is this. I think that we are a country of people who are full of ingenuity. I, I think humanity is full of ingenuity. And, and I think that a lot of things that we, after the fact, call innovation um, are born out of difficult and tough times. Um, they don't necessarily mean like things are going to be easier, um, but things will be different and we will figure that out and we will build like a better future because of it. Uh, and, I, and I firmly believe that humanity has that capacity. I think Americans have that capacity. And I'm kind of like a nostalgic, uh, kind of a sucker for the notion that, uh, you know, as Winston Churchill said, you can always count on Americans to do the right thing after they've tried everything else. And, and I actually, you know, am a, am a believer that that is actually true. I feel hopeful for the same reason, um, not just because Americans have tried everything else and they um, will eventually get to the right answer, but because we've done the right thing historically. That's the thing that gives me the most hope for our future is that we know how to do this. And more to the point, we have the skills, the insight, and we've grown more of the empathy that we need to grow in order to, sorry, Chuck, you had a little pause there. So I took over. You're, you're totally <laughs> yeah. cool. Chuck, I was just saying that I agree with you completely. And that the thing that gives me hope is that we have already done the thing that we need to do. We are trying to return to a traditional development pattern that we have seen work, that we have the bones of that yeah, workable yeah. development pattern in our city already. Um, and more to the point now, we are in an age where we have the tools, the empathy, and the insight to bring more people into that project. And that's really exciting to me and really, really cool. Let me ask this to you as a way to yeah. like build on John's question. What, what do you think the greatest threat to, uh, to success is? Mm -hmm. 
Because I, and, and I ask that because I have a very definitive answer. Um, <laughs> so there's a right answer. So there's a right answer. Let me not, <laughs> no. let me, let me, let me, let me say it. And then have you react to it? I okay. feel like the greatest threat we have right now today is the inability to, to do what you and I are doing right now. Mm-hmm. And, and I think for the audience perspective, maybe we should, I, I just like to point out some differences between you and me that make our, com- our ongoing conversation special and important. Um, not only am I a guy and you're a woman. Um, yes. <laughs> I am a small town person. You are a, more of a big city person. Mm-hmm. I tend to be more conservative in my outlook. And politically, you tend to be more left of center. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think we have very different... I, I think in 2018 America all the things that like statisticians and politicians and pundits say should be dividing us uh, have not divided us amongst these core things that we both think are important and we both think we can find ways to, to talk about and work together on. And, and I, I, so I feel like the biggest threat right now to our future success is our ability to actually communicate complex things mm-hmm. to each other. And I feel like you and I, and this organization in general is a big, I feel like our biggest success has been in like overcoming that threat. Overcoming it, but also to put it more of a positive spin on it, uh, stating what we value and finding our common values to um, like say, it's not just about me not using your trigger words and you not using my trigger words and avoiding all of the gray area. It's recognizing that these are core human issues and like they existed long before the political parties that you and I might vote for in a couple of years um, ever existed. And like there are solutions that have come to belong to one party or another. And that that's not the case. They're just the way that we are trying to make things work. And um, I'm always really inspired and encouraged by Strongtime's ability to focus on questions rather than on platforms. We've gotten a lot of questions today from people saying, what's the Strongtown's position on this? And, you know, I totally understand that language, but I think that Strongtown's has a larger set of values than we have positions and that changes how we might feel about a certain issue depending on context and that's that's what cities need at the end of the day that's how conversations need to happen at the end of the day um Mm -hmm. because there is no thing single thing that we should never do in our cities or none thing that we should always do in our cities it's always context specific um and i'm i'm very proud to work for an organization that recognizes that I think that's really well stated, very well stated. Because even like the thing like, you know, parking minimums, we almost talk about it in terms of like an absolute, but it's not absolute all the time, <laughs> right. you know? Exactly. And so yeah, I, I think I, yeah, that was perfectly well stated. So let's end with that, eh? Yeah, I like it. (laughs) All right. Well, it's been a pleasure, everyone. Please keep an ear out for the podcast. Please continue to submit your questions to the next version of Ask Strong Towns. We're going to be making this a regular thing. So I am going to be announcing pretty shortly another one at the end of June. So watch your email. And thank you so much for tuning in. It's been a real pleasure to get to know all of you today. Yes, thank you so much. And I think this one rule for the next one is that no... No John Reuter questions. I, <laughs> John is banned. So. That threw me for a loop. Yeah. If John Reuter, okay, let me put it this way. If John Reuter wants to ask questions, he can get his face on this uh, webcast as well. That's, I would that's, love to have him. I would love to so have that fun. too. That, yeah. would be, that would be my challenge to John is that, you know, hey, put up or shut up, buddy.
<laughs> All right. Well, with that derogatory message to our board member, <laughs> let's get going. All right. Enjoy the rest of your day, everybody. Take care. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit Agenda 21. Yeah.